proximity can't stand prejudice. Right. Once you sort of get to know a gay person, suddenly, you know, you can't have that same prejudice that was held before from, right. you know, out of ignorance. My father used to sell furniture. And if you ever sat on a table, you were told to get off the table, chairs for sitting on, not tables. There was this little elderly Jewish tailor called Harry. And the first thing he said is, I want you to sit up on the table cross-legged. I was given permission, you know, after all these get off the table thing, I was given wow. permission to sit on the table. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Jonathan. Uh, Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Dave. (laughs) Um, So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Well, basically, you and I met because I had been invited to one of the amazing Spark London storytelling groups an invitation had been extended to lesbian gay men support the minors yeah and mike jackson who originally had been asked to to do it wasn't able to and i was uh, one of the people that said yeah i'm happy to do it and then thought oh what have i let myself in (laughs) (laughs) but it was fine it was it was it was a really extraordinary experience oh good i'm glad you enjoyed it we really enjoyed having you having you along and you you sharing your story with our audience yeah it was a it was a night that fitted well with what lgsm do as well so the theme was union wasn't it yeah so it kind of know, fit which was, which was perfect <laughs> sort of you know because it it worked in on so many levels yeah but uh yeah it was a it was a really sort of uh really kind of engaging evening right and there were some uh, some extraordinary amazing stories yeah, I mean, and I, I was—I don't normally host the encore encore night, so uh, it was—I was really glad that I happened to be uh, covering somebody else's hosting duties that night, so I got to meet you. I mean, I'm—I'm I'm a big fan of the of the film Pride. You know, it was—it was very exciting and interesting and sort of strange to sort of be meeting the second real person that that that, that film is based on, and of course, you were played by by Dominic West in the in the uh, in the film, which which I mean, Dom, Dominic West, I. I've loved since the wire as a, as an actor, yeah. and that's a an amazing person. You know, when they ask these questions of like, who would you have to play you in in a film of your life? I mean, I I can't think of a, a more a cooler person to play you than Dominic <laughs> West. Well, I, I mean, something I would never have thought of. Uh, well, you know, I would never have thought that any part of my life would be sort of committed to uh, to celluloid or digital as it is now. Right. But yeah, he really was uh, a very charming man. And it was amazing sort of, you know, how it all came about because I got a telephone call from Stephen Beresford who wrote the screenplay. Oh, the director and the actor who's going to play you would like to, to come and meet you. Is that all right? And I said, well, yeah, sort of, you know, when? So he said, well, how about tomorrow? <laughs> you know, what about tea time? And I thought, oh, my God, sort of, well, there's just enough time to make a lemon drizzle cake. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, so I said yes. So that was that. And uh, the following day, sort of the doorbell rings and I go to the door expecting to see this posse. 
And there is Stephen Beresford with this extraordinary bouquet made of cabbages and cabbage roses, which was wow. stunning. I that's mean, a, that's, an in, really that's interesting, yeah. And I said, sort of, are you off to a wedding or something? No, he said, they're for you. And oh. thrust them in my hat. So anyway, he said, come in, come in, sort of, uh, where are the others? Oh, they're having a costume fitting, so they'll be along later. So I said, well, OK, come in, come in, sort of come and have a cup of tea. You can't have any cake, not until they arrive. Okay, <laughs> so he came in and uh, Nigel was already sort of here. And so we settled in and waited. And then the doorbell goes a second time. So I go to open it. And this man thrusts his hand out at me and introduced himself as Matthew Warkus, the, uh, the director. And I can see over his shoulder... Dominic West. <laughs> I just sort of gobsmacked. Because right. as you say, I mean, so I saw the wire and just thought, what an amazing performance. Right. And uh, and there he was. So in they came. Yeah, so you didn't even know, so you didn't know until I that moment who was playing that, you? No, I had no idea. So, wow. so it was a, a real sort of, you know, surprise. And, you know, Matthew was brilliant because Matthew just, he came in and sort of made everybody at their ease. And he just started asking myself, Nigel, about our lives and about sort of, you know, LGSM, how we got into LGSM, what our politics were, sort of the whole sort of um, gamut. Right. And Nigel is your partner. who is also yes. in the room with us That's uh, right. as we record this. That's right. <laughs> Nigel, you know, of 31 years, we've, uh, we've managed to, to be together. Wow. Probably sort of very fortunate because we, we live in a housing cooperative, Brixton Housing Cooperative, in a what was an old lesbian and gay squat back from the, uh, the 70s. Nigel knew it way before I did because he used to live in on Mayor Road, further down the road. Down the road. <laughs> Am I allowed to talk? You are allowed yeah. to talk, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, down the road. So, I mean, he was there during the riots. Right. I had to make a toss-up as to whether or not he was going oh, to ride or, <laughs> or go to see sort of Janet Baker <laughs> sing Julius Caesar. Well, at least there was some war in it. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, and I guess for people who haven't seen the film Pride, they might not know what we're really meaning when we're saying LGSM. So, yeah. Right, it was, it, it, it was a, a group, Lesbian and Gay Men Support Minors, and we basically were a group who wanted to support the miners' strike, the 1984 miners' strike. So we wanted to support a community. And we had, or the, the, the group had attempted to get hold of the National Union of Miners and see sort of, you know, whether they would sort of, you know, direct us to a community that uh, that was in need. And they didn't seem to want to have anything to do with uh, with a lot of uh, of puffs. So that sort of uh, didn't uh, didn't amount to much. But there was a, a guy called Gethin, Gethin Roberts, who was from South Wales. And so there was a, a South Wales connection. And eventually we hit on a mining community in Dulais, yeah. in South Wales, part of the, uh, the South Wales coalfield. Yeah. That was how this extraordinary sort of, you know, meeting between two very, very different communities right. happened. And Pride is the, is the story of from Gay Pride 1984 through until Gay Pride 1985... Because although the the, uh, the strike 
you know, finished in uh, March of 85. On the June of 1985, a whole lot of miners and their families came up and marched with us with their brass band. And that's true. I mean, that, at that the end is, of the film, that, that's what happens, and it is yes, true, right? Yes, it is, it is true. I mean, there were not quite as many right, um, right. There's as, lots of as in the, in the film. film there right? are loads of coaches <laughs> in the film. But, but uh, they did indeed. And it is also true, as the, as the film portrays, that sort of, you know, by 1985, sort of, uh, you know, Pride, the committee wanted everything to be a carnival and Mardi Gras and what have you. And so, as ever, the political groups were going to be at the back. And there was a huge sort of, you know, ruckus about it, but that was that. And then suddenly the miners turned up and we were promoted, right. I suppose because of their brass band, we were promoted to leading. That mm. is uh, Pride. I mean, that's tremendous, like a tremendous moment, I bet, uh, yeah. to have experienced. Yeah. I mean, it's all so complicated, isn't it? All of these, these, different, these different facets of, of all of this that are kind of going on, of like solidarity and discrimination and like there's layers of, of those with and all of the different groups. With all of the different groups and then sort of, you know, even within that right. there are all kinds of dramas that are going on. And, right, uh, because just because you're all, all gay or lesbian people doesn't mean you all share the same politics. Absolutely not, and of course. And <laughs> <laughs> no. it still continues, of course. Of course, yeah. yeah. Yes, I mean, sort of, so much sort of, you know, is... Uh, you know, we, we seem to have gone so far and yet actually we uh, we haven't. Right. But what is extraordinary about this film, and I suppose that, that it's something that, that hadn't really struck me, that the effect of our twinning with the South Wales miners and our giving their support, what came out of that was so amazing because it was the South Wales miners that put pressure on the National Union of Miners to use their block vote at the Labour Party conference that year to get gay rights onto the Labour Party's agenda. Right. And basically there is a direct line from that to equalising the age of consent because right. in those days the age of consent was still 21. Right, and that's a seriously yeah. important equal uh, rights that's right. issue. Right. And it moved to 18 uh, and then finally the Labour Party actually moved it to 16 so there was sort of yeah. equality within that. But more than that, you know, by putting sort of, by 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 the union putting their mandate, you know, their block vote, using it to get the gay rights onto the political agenda, we now have civil partnerships. Right. You know, and... Well, marriage now. And, well, I mean, now marriage, yeah. Yeah, but, but marriage is a kind of Tory con you know, right. convention. Well, really. that's one of those, well, that's one of those interesting kind of political buttons <laughs> exactly. to, where there's a lot of... I mean, certainly, I'm, I'm not... If I could, as a, as a straight guy, have a, a civil partnership, that would be my ideal, <laughs> you know, because I don't support the institution of marriage either. But I, I also think that it should be available to everybody, so it's more complicated. Well, that's because that's <laughs> a really interesting thing, that, that heterosexuals can't have civil partnerships. Right. And you just think, although what I don't, is all this? even a civil partnership, I have a little bit of problem with just because of the fact that I don't, I don't know even want the, st I don't know why I need the state to to validate my my love either. You know, it's, well, it's not. I mean, it, it it's it's true, isn't it? That's true. It's it's to do with property. It is right. purely to do with property. Right. You know. 
So if you don't own anything, <laughs> then why should you sort of uh, have a have a civil partnership? Right. But it's it's when people having been encouraged to buy their house or what's his name that's really so you have a about. control over partly who the who your property goes to as well isn't it like it's because yeah. it's, it's otherwise it will go defaults to your original next of kin whoever well, that is well that's right and of course within <laughs> gay relationships and certainly around hiv and and when people were sort of in the very early days that the people were sort of uh, were, were were dying and dying sort of you know by the sort of uh, well, it just it was it, so was, it was carnage. Yeah. There were so many, but a lot of the time you would have these situations where families would absolutely cut out the lover, didn't want the lover to have anything to do right. with the sort of you know, even though they'd been the person that had cared for them, lived with them, what have you. So in those terms, a civil partnership, if there had been those in those days, would have at least given them some sort of. Uh, legal status well this is the complicated thing isn't it this idea that family have rights to us you know i mean that's quite pertinent it feels like now uh, just because it's this this we're recording this kind of only a few sort of days after or well maybe weeks now after a trans suicide note was sort of left on on online on a on a on a, on a website of, of leela alcorn mm. and uh clearly her family didn't accept her and yet now they are the ones who have the kind of rights to her memory if she hadn't have left that yes. digital signature of her own identity. And mm. so it, it, it does... It, and, and as someone who... I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'm basically straight, I guess, uh, as much as I want to align myself with that <laughs> position. Um, but, but, I mean, I, I, I've had complicated relationships with my family. I, don't, I mean, I'm quite lucky in that I do get on with them now or whatever, but there's many... I wouldn't want my family to have the rights to my identity after I'm gone. I'd, I'd want my, oh. my friends and my lovers to, to have that. But yeah. it's true, isn't it? Sort of, you know, Philip Larkin got it right. Right. This fuck you up. Well, exactly, and, and 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 I mean, and I guess if you are a member of a marginalised group, then that's even more complicated because, like, one of one of the the things that is often said and is being said now, quite rightly, around Leela's death, is often your family are your first bullies. They are your first, the first people to mm. the first time you experience homophobia. May I, don't, I mean, I'm not making any assumptions about no, your no, families, no. but no. maybe in your family, in your in your home life, and this idea of families being safe is a is a very strange one to me. Yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> no. no. But it's, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. I mean, when I sort of uh, came out and it was 21 was was the point that sort of, you know, I could sort of state it. And I remember sort of I hit, you know, literally my, my 21st birthday and I just announced to my family that, uh, that I was gay. And my mother said, but we knew. <laughs> and I said, well, why didn't you tell me? Right. You know, because it would have just made so much difference if they'd known. You know, I wouldn't have had to go through all the tortuous twists and turns and inventing this, that and the next thing. But my old brother said, well, I can deal with you, but any of your friends, I would punch their lights out. And I just said, in that case, we will not speak. And that was that. And right up until, basically, till my father died, because my mother predeceased my father. We didn't communicate. We didn't speak. Oh, it's so sad. I mean, it's yeah. sad. It's, the thing is that people with bigotry that 
they're missing out themselves like your brother missed out I mean I'm not saying I want to be I'm not sympathizing more with him than I am with no, you no, but no. he's missed out on a on a brother on a relationship oh, for ab- loads and loads of years oh people do change what's happened with him is yeah, I mean he's now organized for somebody to come round to your Hall is it? No, what's what what basically so sort of happening? I got a, I got a, which is really interesting. I got a phone call. He lives in the Cotswolds, right? And I got a phone call from him the other day saying I haven't said anything to the people who are organising it, but someone in the village is organising a showing of Pride, and would it be all right for me to sort of uh, to ask them, you know, if they're interested, um, whether you would come up and do a Q&A after it. Brilliant. And I just, so just I said, yeah. And so this is the same brother that all those years back. Right. You know, I mean, which is extraordinary. I mean, that's the thing that's good about the film. In that, and, and one of the things that I hope, I have hopes that we will, we, we, I, th- I know people can change. I've seen it. Yeah. And so I hope that, that there's so many people who can change. And I, I, But then it's it's kind of finding that balance, isn't it? Between trying to, trying to, Trying to allow people the space to be able to change, but also protect yourself from from because because it's it's absolute balance. But there's a, I mean really interesting sort of you know uh, Matthew Warkus, who's the director, says that proximity can't stand prejudice. Right. Once you sort of get to know a gay person, suddenly you know you can't have that same prejudice that was held before from right. you know out of ignorance right i mean and that that and i think that's transferable that. as well to pretty much all other groups that yeah. experience prejudice hopefully like once you get to know somebody from whatever group mm. hopefully that changes you but it's really interesting <laughs> around all that because like now cbs films distributed pride or are distributing pride in canada and the united states and what was amazing was that uh, they invited, there was uh, myself, Sean James, who, Sean, who became an MP, really, you know, after sort of, you know, after the, the strike, she went, uh, you know, back into sort of education. I mean, this this was a housewife. I mean, she was extraordinary. Well, right, but, extraordinary. and she was supporting the, she, she was a, one of the many women who were in, instrumental in the, in the, in the, Miners' side of the of the rights of the strike movement. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, I mean, they were formidable people, <laughs> absolute formidable, but but brilliant, charming, lovely. Anyway, you know, she put herself back into education and went to to, to Swansea University, and then from there became the first female MP for Swansea East, and she's been an MP for ten years. She's about to stand out. And that is an amazing journey, yeah. You know, for 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 that to happen. Now I'd completely forgotten where I was. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I think. I mean, that's how conversations go. It's true. It, 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 that's and that's fine. But before before we get into some of some of these issues and, and, and experiences in a bit more detail, I guess uh, I should ask you the second question that I ask everybody, All which right, is yes. which is what do you do now? I'm retired. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe it. I sort of, uh, I hit uh, 65 uh, and receive a state pension. Prior to that, I had, well, I had 
in my first incarnation, as I call it, sort of pre my sort of HIV or HTLV3 diagnosis in, uh, in October 1982, um, I'd been an actor. So I, in 1967, I went to Rose Bruford Drama School in Sidcup and trained as an actor. And my parents were thrilled because it also gave you a teaching diploma. So sort of, uh, that would be fine, you'd be safe. But I didn't want to teach, so I had no intention of teaching. <laughs> Um, so sort of uh, I'd done sort of I'd, I'd been a, a, an actor for on and off for for 12 years and I had periods when I was uh, out of work so I would uh, sling hash wait tables right so I waited tables at, uh, at a restaurant called Joe Allen's in uh, Covent Garden now Joe Allen's was a, an institution in the States in America in New York because it was famed for actors waiting tables. Right. So sort of uh, right. loads of out-of-work actors would be waiting tables there. It's just one of those things. And the same thing carried on, carried over in London. And so that's where I sort of, uh, I sort of uh, ended up, which was, you know, fortunate. So I'd had sort of, you know, I'd had some really interesting work, but I'd reached the point that I just thought, you know... I was beginning to lose my nerve, sort of uh, going on stage was, uh, was, uh, was difficult. But I'd had like 15 months out of work right. when I got ill. And because I'd been working at Joe Allen's, I got sick pay. Wow. Because you know? yeah. as an actor, you wouldn't get some no. sick pay or holiday <laughs> no. pay or anything like that. So that's what I did. So that actually sort of, you know, got me through sort of the first the first hurdle right and then i got my uh, hiv diagnosis and you were um I, I, I may be wrong but you were one of the first kind of people to be I was diagnosed one of the, i was one of the early people right. diagnosed i mean in the film it says that i was number two right um no it's not strictly true what i what my number was was l1 london one right but this was at the middlesex hospital so every hospital obviously right. had. So I don't think there's any way that one can say this is the first person. No, what's no, his name, no you sure. Know, so thing. But yes, <laughs> I mean, I, I had a very early number. It was one it was early enough for, that no one was familiar with with the disease around you. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it was it was it was a it was a really fascinating time. On the one hand, I mean, it was really scary. Yeah. Because essentially, it was a, a terminal diagnosis. But because. There wasn't a great deal known about it. And because I had lived in uh, in the States, so I had lived in New York for 10 months in 1974. I had been to San Francisco in 1982 because a friend of mine got married there. An ex-partner was then living in San Francisco. He'd been headhunted. He was in advertising, so he'd been headhunted and he was in San Francisco. So I went to stay with him for uh, for two weeks, which was glorious. So because I had all these connections with the States, I was getting a lot more information about this disease yeah. that seemed to be sweeping the sort of the gay communities in, in uh, New York, San right. Francisco, all over. Because, I mean, the, the thing about America is that any minority group in America is yeah. really big because it's at such a big place, right? So I guess that's one of the reasons why... It was felt so obviously there straight well, away. Well, they had ectops, didn't they? Which was a very 
wasn't it? Yeah, no actor. It was an amazing group. Yeah. Um, Larry Kramer and Act Up were extraordinary. If you didn't uh, act up, you'd die. Yeah. So you had to act up. Yeah. It's one of those clever phrases, isn't it? Mm. That's what they meant by it. Yeah. So sort of so so essentially, I was getting sort of a lot of information because there was so much misinformation right. that was also going around. Okay. But the, but the, the the medical fraternity, you know, for them it was all new. So there was this marvelous dialogue. It was all fine for like the first ten years of the disease, and then as it became more medicalized suddenly the power shifted and it started going back to the old ways where, you know, the medics know best. Right. But in the sort of, in the intervening years, there had been all these incredible sort of drop-in centres. So there was one on Tulse Hill, the landmark, which was brilliant. It meant that, that you could go there. They had lots of information. There was lots of peer support but it wasn't sort of created as such it just meant you went and you know met with with people and you got information and you got food right so sort of you know that 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 they they had kitchens and so at least sort of uh, you would get one or two hot nutritional meals right a day because that was the other thing that sort of, you know, it was really difficult. Times were, were tight, trying to get good food. Right, because, yeah, so the, the country itself and, and, and pretty much uh, probably America as well, like everywhere was, like now, hit by kind of recessions and financial yes. destruction. That's... And then you're, in, you're from a, a, a group that's already marginalised by, by everybody. That's right. It's doubly marginalised right. because of the sort of the stigma of, of, of the disease and all right. of the misinformation because the sort of the stuff that, for instance, the likes of the murder or press were printing about us. Well, I guess horrendous. for them it was like, here's a brilliant opportunity for us to link our homophobic attitudes with stuff that will really, really scare people, That's I guess. right. That's <sighs> right. And, you know, and, I mean, what was really interesting was, and I have, I have to say I have great respect for, uh, for sort of, oh, God, now I've forgotten his name, who was the health minister in the Thatcher government, Oh. And it'll it'll come to me. He basically, you know, was was instrumental in in getting funding for HIV and for, for funding for sort of all these sort of drop in centres. So you know, there was there was Terence Higgins Trust, there was Body Positive, there was George House Trust in uh, in Manchester. I mean, a whole number of uh, of, uh, of places. Um, and and he was really kind of persuasive, and he told Thatcher that there was HIV in the heterosexual population right. in Edinburgh. <clears throat> right. Well, it's incredibly dangerous this misinformation for the heterosexual community. Oh, because <clears throat> because I mean everyone's going on like, oh, gay people are going to get it, but yeah, I'm all right. That's right. You know, you it's know, terrible. It's madness. <laughs> total madness. So anyway, sort of he sort of you know told her that and. Basically, that obviously freaked her because she pumped in billions into it. What he didn't tell her was that it was in the heterosexual intravenous drug user population because she would have let them go to the wall. Like she was perfectly happy to let sort of, you know, 
gay men go to the right, we're a second marginalised group. That's right. So, exactly. right. Yeah. So uh, Norman Fowler, right, and he has been. I mean, he's been extraordinary, you know, and he's really been sort of you know pushing the vaccination for for HIV. I mean, sort of you know all power to him. He's, right. So he's been remarkable i mean you you so you were i mean you got your diagnosis in 82 right yeah. which is so that's like one year after i was born <laughs> um so that means you've lived with this this illness yeah. for, for 32 years yeah. yeah um and it's gone from being something that originally when it came out was a death sentence was i mean i i, I don't even have like i i, I know that there are so many images and memories that are going to be uh, mm. churning around in your brain mm. when I mention these things. Mm. So I'm, I'm sens- trying to be sensitive to that. But it was, you know, terrible at, at its start. But Absolutely. now it's now it's it's. I mean, and this is something that that people don't realise. But but now it's actually, you know, it's, it's a, a very livable with condition. It's, you might even it, say it, it's it, it seems uh, it it seems to be seen as sort of equivalent to sort of diabetes. Right. I mean. To me, I think that, that, that that's not a, a good analogy. You know, if you can tolerate the medication, right, then that's fine. But it requires you to be able to be adherent because the important thing is that, that you take your doses and sort of, you know, take doses at the correct time. And... You know, if you live a chaotic lifestyle, right, or if you are a chaotic person, or what, <laughs> yeah, you know, and there are a lot of people who are a lot of vulnerable people who who have got disease, you know, that can't manage right that, then it's not easy. But you know, I've been very fortunate in terms that to begin with, um, I was belligerent, <laughs> so so you know. And and that saved me. Uh, essentially, sort of when I was sort of diagnosed, and it was very very early to say they were using this failed chemotherapy drug called AZT, um, and it was monotherapy, and people were being given three grams a day, so a gram in the morning, a gram sort of in the afternoon, and a gram at night, and essentially it killed them you know nowadays when azt is used it is used in 1.25 milligrams i mean a minute right. dose i was you know asked if i would be part of a cohort they they had this uh, this this idea that they would have cohorts to to test how it worked so i said well if you're going to to to, to do that are you going to have someone who is similar in metabolism to me or build to me or what's his name, who either I will get the AZT or I will get the placebo and right. my Control. opposite number yeah, yeah, yeah. Will, will have the what have you. No, 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 that's too complicated. So then I said, well, if you can't be bothered to do that, I said, if you could put a line down the middle of me and, you know, <laughs> I'd give one half of the AZT and the other half the placebo, then I'm interested. Now, I knew that that was impossible, but I said, if you can't be bothered, I can't be bothered. Now, yeah. at the same time as, you know, I'm saying that sort of, you know, grandly now, I didn't care if I lived or died right, at that course. point. Yeah. I mean, you know, not of course. But yeah. So it was kind of no big deal right. for me. 
at that point, I was sort of living out in the East End. I was feeling very sort of um, alienated, very alone. And I'd, in the December of that year, I'd sort of tried to commit suicide, and I couldn't. I couldn't bear the thought of someone coming to clear up the mess mm. after me. Very anal in that way. So I thought, all right, well, if you can't kill yourself, then you better get out and live. And I really didn't know how I was going to, to do that. And I'd sort of, you know, would would go out to, to, you know, a few sort of gay bars, but feeling really filthy, really right. kind of, you know, I didn't didn't want to be too near people because sort of, you know, I was going to infect them. And even, you know, in your head, your head scrambled. Right. But I saw in one of the, the, the gay papers, and it was either Capital Gay or the Pink Paper or what have you, that there was going to be this stand together around Greenham, Burfield and Aldermaston, these three nuclear sites, Greenham Common with the uh, the American Air Base and the amazing sort of women of, uh, of Greenham. And I thought, all right, then why don't I sort of um, go and join that? And there was going to be a coach that was leaving on All Fool's Day, it's perfect, 1983, from Gays the Word, this, uh, this well-known sort of uh, gay bookshop in Bloomsbury. And so off I went to it and I remember thinking god what have I let myself in for and there was this coach that was uh, was leaving and I remember seeing this extraordinary man who had got sort of this wild curly sort of uh, black hair and he was wearing Wellington boots and with amazing pantaloons they were sort of um, crimson and an ochre colour it was Nigel. <laughs> and I so, remember it like that. A little bit like yeah. that. And, uh, and we started sort of chatting and sort of basically spent most of that, uh, that day together. And that was the start of a whole change in my life. I mean, it was just amazing. All Fool's Day, 1983. And that was the start. I mean, that was the start of your relationship. Start of the of the relationship, and uh, I was living out in the uh, in the East End. He was living in a, a squat in uh, in uh, North London in Fleet Road. And one day he said, um, "Look, you know, why don't sort of you're living out there? I'm living out there. Why don't we sort of uh, move in together? There's a squat in Brixton that I know." And uh, why don't we do that? And, and then the, and and that's where of, we're sort of... Is the, is well, that, no, this, the, we, we, we went to, to one which was in St James's... Uh, no, St John's, St James's Square in Brixton near the police station. St John's. St John's, no, yeah. it was St John's. But that didn't work out for various reasons. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then we had to leave there. And then sort of uh, Nigel knew of this place the place where we are today yeah we were in 146 this house was uh, was not part of was not part of the uh, of the scheme so we moved in there yeah and you so say you've been you've been here, and here basically ever since. ever since we joined Brixton Housing Co-op and uh, and then sort of you know got really involved with uh, well I certainly got really involved with uh, with that 
And when and when and on that day that that, that your life that the new version of you sort of emerged from that day, yeah. I mean that was also the sort of roots to you becoming part of LGSM, right? Is, is yeah, that... if I hadn't have you know Nigel, well he can speak for himself, <laughs> but he was a he was a, you know a very sort of a, a political activist, had a long sort of history. Yeah, well he's become that. I'm not so much that now. Because, not because I'm not it. Yeah. It's just my health is uh, right. Yeah. But I mean, he's strong. He's much stronger than I. Am. <sighs> he had a stroke, so I mean, heavens no. above, you know, sort of that right. would so, do for anyone. Wouldn't it? I mean, you, you know, everybody does the activism they can, they can do, right? When and, they can, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not it's not for anybody. It's not to be on anyone's shoulders forever. No, you know. No, it, no, you it, can't. No. no, but he was in in you know. Groups, serious groups like Gay Left. I mean, sort of. Well, that's well, not going to mean anything to. Well, anyway. I'm sure that that, that 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 when people hear I that, there'll be people. Of, yeah, people, people worked may, out politics yeah. really. That was much more worked out and defined really. Yeah. By, I was Trotskyist really. Right. You know, that sort of thing. But you were a member of the National Union of Teachers. You were sort of involved in all of that. So, if you were a teacher, yeah. But uh, well, I think what I was was I was I never joined Trotsky's group. At least, thankfully, I didn't. But you know, the the politics were politics. Really, I supported them. Right. Close to what, what is it now? Is it? What's it called now? SWP. Yeah, SWP. Yeah, it probably... Um, I never joined. There's a bunch of different yes, left-wing yes, kind of organisations. So I think it was a very sensible thing. Right. But I do remember a friend, a close friend, saying, come Nigel, that, you know, the only people stand for election, get elected, because we all stood on a sleigh. How come we're the only people? There's only two people that ever get elected. It's you and me, and she, she was Ruth, and she was very fun. So, but we're the only two human beings in it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> she was very funny, <laughs> and uh, it was. Uh, anyway, I sort of feel uh, I don't feel I should be talking too much really because I'll take it over with my stories. <laughs> well, um, they're good oh, stories, uh, but it was it was it was it was you know through you know meeting sort of Nigel that just this a whole other world. You know, I'd been involved with uh, with unions. I believed in trade union. I'd been a member of Equity. I mean, I know you had to be a member of Equity, but right. it was you know I really believed in uh, in unions and trade unionism. So you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't difficult. So you know, moving into to Brixton Housing Co-op and being involved with a cooperative where, you know, we're a very small cooperative. I mean, we have thirty five houses, right. so it's not vast. Yeah. But you know, one needs to be active within it. So you know, I was part of the development subcommittee, and we would develop houses, getting ready for for them to be converted. And of course. Back in those days, one had a number of wonderful organisations. There was the Housing Corporation. And the Housing Corporation, you could go to housing corporations and housing associations could go to to get money to rehab buildings. Right. So, 
you know, these squats that uh, have now been rehabbed, but sort of, you know, they were in a terrible sort of, you know... Oh, oh God, sorry. <laughs> That's OK, God. don't worry. <laughs> sorry. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. Uh, well, excuse well, me. That's, you, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's see. Uh, have a good chat. Yeah, thanks, so thanks, thanks, thanks for being an, an extra guest on the show. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's always good to meet new Thank people. You. So you've been a bit like, as you say, you had you had an idea of the, of, of 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 the political kind of direction that your life might go before that before before meeting Nigel, but but the, that really kind of cemented it, I guess, for you. Yeah, I mean that 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 kind of sort of you know I suppose crystallised it. Um, so, I mean, what was re- really interesting is that that my mother, who, I mean. She has a, an interesting history, and, and what is great is that sort of she was born in Swansea in 1914. Oh, right. So there's, so a, there's connection. a connection. Oh, there. yeah. So there's connection sort of there. In 1972, I played the Grand Theatre Swansea in Aladdin. I was playing the Slave of the Lamp. Right. And this was during the first miners' strike and the three day week. And I remember that that uh, in order for the show to go on, the Grand Theatre purchased a ship's fog lamp that would be at the back of the uh, the auditorium. So on the days that there was no electricity, they'd got a generator, and there was this just this spot that was there that right. lit the stage, so the show could go on. So my connection with with Swansea and with South Wales was really kind of acute. Right. So suddenly, having joined LGSM, there I was in South Wales, and it was very important to me. But anyway, so my mother was uh, the daughter of a rabbi, and they emigrated to Canada in 1914, just before the start of, uh, of World War I. And then in 19... So he was an Orthodox rabbi. And there was a big Jewish community in Neath and in Swansea, yeah, South Wales. Right. So anyway, they, they emigrated, first of all, to, to Winnipeg. And then for some reason, and I don't know what the, the turn, and I would love to have known, but, you know, there's no one to there to ask. In 1924 he turned from being orthodox to reform, okay. left Winnipeg right. and went to Montreal. And in 1926, he died suddenly, had a heart attack and died very young. I mean, he was about in his early 40s. But the family were left brassic. There was, there was my mother, um, her elder sister, who was much older than her, and their mother. Their mother's sister had married a man called Louis Silkin and they lived in Dulwich and Louis Silkin was Jewish and because he was Jewish he couldn't join the Tory party so he joined the Labour party (laughs) because he knew that for him and and he was a, a lawyer and he knew that in order to get on he needed to be involved in politics right so the only place that he could go was the Labour Party because the Liberals didn't really exist. You know, they had been and then, yeah. you know, 
demised and sort of you know the tourism one could say so. maybe they just still don't exist well yes. anyway so so basically um he lived in dulwich and so the the family my mother's family they had to sell up everything to get passage back to come and move in with uh, their aunt rosa in uh, in dulwich and so that's where uh, where they went and for years um i was thinking how how can i tell my parents that i am living just off relton road you know all they will see is rats and this that and i really don't want any more sort of you know grief around sort of uh, you know my life and my choices and, right. and what have you Exactly, yeah. And eventually I just thought, no, this is silly. You know, you're living here, sort of, tell them. So I told them, well, my mother was over the moon. She remembered as a child, well, as a child, I mean, she would have been sort of, I suppose, 13, 14, 15. She used to walk from Dulwich down Relton Road to Morley's to get the bus to Elephanton Castle because she was at Geoffrey Chaucer's school. Oh, right. So she remembered Relton Road in its glory days. Right. So it, was so it, was, so what, it didn't have the connotations for her that all, you'd worried about. Not at all. Not at all. That's great. See how wrong you can be about yeah. sort of, uh, about this. And one of the things in the film Pride, because, I mean, there's, there's some changes to the reality mm. of things. So, I mean... Uh, I think you, you, Nigel's not in the film. Nigel's He's kind of composite film, sort of, character, right? That's right. Sort of, he and Gethin, the Gethin Roberts, were mixed together. Were were mixed together because basically what happened was that Stephen had come and spoken to us. There is a, an amazing documentary, which, if people want to Google, so it's still the enemy. It's, no, 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 no. Oh, is that a different no, one? That's okay. a fantastic. No, this is this is this is this is nothing in comparison to okay. that. But it's a documentary that was made by part of LGSM for the Delice community. Oh, right, yeah. And it's called All Out. If you Google All Out uh, Dancing in Delice, right. you will get it. And Stephen Beresford had had a disagreement or an argument with a friend of his. Because in 1993, when John Major was finally closing, you know, down the rest of finishing off Thatcher's hatchet work. Yes. Closing sort of the, the remaining sort of uh, coal fields. Yep. Stephen had said, you know, I can't understand why people are not more angry about this, certainly within the game community. Why aren't people sort of outraged by what's going on? You know, I, I just don't understand it. And his this friend, who was much older than him, said, well, let me tell you a story. And he told him the story of LGSM and, uh, and the Delice community. And he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it, he said, actually, because it meant that he lost the argument. <laughs> but, but it obviously stayed with him. Yeah. And he basically thought, oh, well, I better check this out, you know, much later on. And had sort of Googled and somehow had come across this documentary. And there were all these talking heads. But because it was sort of, you know, an amateur, so degree, sort of uh, production, yeah. there were no names 
of right. people okay. underneath. So he had to wait right to the very end for the credits to all go up to see if he could find an A that was unusual that he could then think, I can go to Facebook and see if I can find this person. Right. And up came this name, Reggie Blennerhassett, and he thought, there can't be many Reggie right. Blennerhassetts. And so he essentially, you know, went onto Facebook, sent a message to this Reggie Blennerhassett, are you anything to do with lesbian, gay men, sports, minors? And it was Reggie, and Reggie then responded. He met with, uh, with Stephen realised that Stephen was actually a good guy, that he really wanted to tell this story. He was really interested, he understood. Because, I mean, there could have been all sorts of... I mean, you could have taken this story up. I I can imagine this story being done by... by, in a a parody, like, in a horrible way. Absolutely. So I'm very pleased that it was the right person to do that. Yeah, no, no, I mean, it it was amazing. So anyway, so, you know, Reggie having vetted him, he then introduced him to Mike Jackson. Right. And again, Mike vetted him and went through. And then Mike basically gave him a whole list of people. So he did his 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 field work. He he basically came and he interviewed. He interviewed Nigel. Yeah. He interviewed me. Interviewed a whole number of people. Sean, what have you? And I then get this phone call after sort of you know I suppose sort of it must I think it must have been like two years after he'd done the initial. But maybe you know my time scales right all over the place. but it does take a long time to do these things well, so it exactly. could easily be that no. he said do you remember me my name's Stephen Beresford and I came and interviewed you for a film that I wanted to write about lesbian gay men sport the minors oh yes I said so he said well I need to come and, uh, and speak with you so is it possible that the thing so we made a, 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 a range the date for him to come here so the doorbell rings, I go to this front door, there is this tall, good-looking man standing there, and he says, you don't remember me, do you? <laughs> so I said, well, give me a right. idea. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he said, basically, he came in, he said, basically, you know, I wrote the screenplay, it has been made into a film, it is going to go into production, your story inspired me, and I have written a character called Jonathan, and he's based on you. Right, and I hope that's all right. And that must have been another strange moment, like oh. like when you met met Dominic West. But what I've heard is that that one. So I I know that some of the things in that in the film are, are fictional or fictionalizations. Yes, like like which like is great. The, the character of Joe, right. is completely made up, but because, necessary, right? But necessary, so because necessary. he wanted to have this story of of someone coming out and dealing yeah. with sort of uh, with all the sort of the issues of sort of homophobia and what's his name. And it's brilliant, right? Sort of but, but one of the th- but one of the things that is I've been told is true, or, or whatever tr- true means, is is the dancing scene, right? Is that right? No, <laughs> I mean I wish I could say yes. I mean there is an amazing photograph, and I know this is this is radio, this is podcast, so one can't. But of me dancing, uh, and it has me clapping my hands in such full glee and around me are all these women and all these gay men and behind are all these minors sitting with their pipes i mean it's really interesting that the only people who are dancing are either women or gay men right 
which is a very interesting thing. I mean, I think that's, that says a very interesting thing about how heterosexual men, even though they are by far the, the most oppressive group, are also oppressed themselves, right? Because they're not dancing. That's right. I love to dance. That's right. No, no, no. It's, it's, it is. It's you extraordinary. Know? It's one of those things. But that, so there is this, this one photograph and there is me sort of clapping my hands in glee and sort of behind me is Sean. Who is, uh, who is dancing, uh, and a whole number of things. And from that one photograph, right. the dance, the four-and-a-half-minute dance, yeah, right. was choreographed. Because it's a, it's a big sequence in the film. It's a, it's a huge sequence in the film. And, so, you know, it was wonderful. We, we had such amazing times. You know, the hardship that sort of that community was going to, but the generosity that they offered to us was just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. You know, the first time we went down there, in the film, it's, it's, you know, we get there and what's the name. In reality, the first time that we went down there and there were, there were two minibuses, which we had sort of hired from, uh, from Hackney Community Transport. So, Drivers had to go and do their tests and what's his name to get licensed by them. So there were two minibuses from uh, from Hackney Community from and a clapped out VW. We got lost, so we must have arrived at somewhere around about sort of two o'clock in the morning. Right, <laughs> you know. which is an interesting time to arrive somewhere. Uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, our first arrival in the film is is very different, but. There was this extraordinary kind of trepidation. What on earth were we letting ourselves in right. for? I mean, you, and it could have go. gone. It could have gone different ways. It, it's, oh, yeah. it's so great that what happened, and that, that's one of the things I think is really inspiring about that story. But, but I mean, it could have gone different ways. There are communities where it would have gone different ways. I suspect absolutely. And so it's it's so. I mean, it's so heartwarming. I mean, what but, is interesting is that 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 after the event, sort of charm talked about that, that when we were sort of uh, when we were in Toronto we were talking about it and she said that that they actually because Mike Jackson had written a letter as the secretary of the group he had written a letter to them and so they had had this letter and they had gone through you know all the jokes and all the what's them but they had decided that they would accept our help yeah and once that was decided that was that now there was obviously you know, some dissension. Of course. I mean, as I'm sure there would be on on the other side of, exactly. of this, there probably would have been some condescending attitudes within the the gay community from London <laughs> about these miners. I'm sure so oh, there, there would have been yeah. prejudice on both sides well, of to course. a certain extent. I mean, and and there was, and I mean, you know, even that is shown in the film, right? That that, that a lot of of people's main preoccupations, you know, at that point was was HIV and AIDS, right? You know, and that's what we should be collecting for, you know, not sort of, you know, the miners and what's his name. But for us, for LGSM, it was it was really it was a really important battle to be won. Right. You know, and we understood what it was like to be trashed by the state because all our lives we had been sort of down. Whereas sort of, you know, for the miners, that must have been such a shock. Right. The miners who were the stalwarts of the country, the, certainly the stores of the trade union movement, if it wasn't for the mines and the miners, you wouldn't have industry. So it was just, it was extraordinary that, that, that the state could turn on them. 
Yeah, I mean, to, to such an extent as well that they were turned on. I mean, absolutely. You know. And you know, that's that's what what is amazing. I mean, if anybody hasn't seen Still the Enemy Within, it is the most fantastic, absolutely fantastic and fascinating documentary. Brilliant, really yeah. brilliant. For them to to be having to deal with that was was just amazing. Yeah. And we understood it, so it, in a way, it was a natural. That, yeah, that, it makes that, so that, much that, sense. So yeah. much sense, but kind of after the event, it makes so much sense. Right, because if you look object, like whatever objectively means, if you look from the outside at all of the different groups, you can you can go, oh, you've all got these similar. You're being treated in a similar ways by, you know, by by the state or hmm. by um, by the public, whatever. There's lots of different. You can see all these similarities, but from the from within all of those groups, I guess all you can see, or all a lot of people can see, is the difference. Well, it is interesting, and, and and what's lovely within the film is that sort of, and you know, it wasn't me, but sort of uh, in the film, the character played by Dominic West explains to Sean that there are certain rights that you have that an individual has, and that the police can't just arrest you. For, for sort of for predicting or what's name and down she goes to the police station and she says I'm not leaving until sort of you have released these people you have no right to have them bang 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 uh, and it's amazing because we had been through those situations yeah. we knew you could share the, you could share yeah. that information you know when you've been on loads of demonstrations and certainly sort of you know as 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 gay men they used to be used to have a card telling you what to do right. in case you were arrested by the police, what your rights were. Right. Because, you know, you were forever going to be sort of, you know, harassed and, uh, and arrested and uh, what have you. It's those little bits that are just the way that Stephen has written that script is, is extraordinary. It really kind of sort of gives yeah. amazing colour. Right. I mean, I think it is a remarkable piece of... Work. I mean, it, it, particularly because it, it speaks to so many different audiences. It manages to make quite a main. It's very mainstream film, but with an unmainstream sensibility. I guess yeah, so. That's yeah, a great thing. Yeah. It's been fascinating to talk to some of the people who lived the actual, you know, lives that it's it's based but on. What's interesting is that, that that one had no idea that 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 you know this this amazing generosity, as they say, that 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 the South Wales miners sort of gave to us. You know, yes, we had supported them, but what they did that then had this amazing sort of ramification. I, it wasn't something that, that I'd ever really thought about until Pride kind of, you know, this film comes right. along and you think, wow, I was involved in that. Yeah, and it is fascinating me as well because, like you say, I mean, the, the original, when, like Stephen Beresford didn't know about it to begin with, mm. right? And I'm, I'm sure he had an interest in, 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 in the, the history of the miners and the history of, 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 of gay rights, right? So, and, you know, for, for example, my dad had never heard of, of LGSM uh, and he, he was, uh, he, he, he did documentaries for the coal, for the coal board. Uh, he, he went to loads of mining communities. He cares passionately about those communities and, and uh, cares, cares passionately in a different way about the Thatcher government, mm-hmm. in a, in a, you know, in a, in a yes. hatred kind of way. Yes. And he'd not heard of that mm-hmm. either. I mean, and so, so it seems like it had a real importance in terms of how it actually had this ramification throughout yeah. history. But 
but people who were there at the time didn't even know, you know, that it was happening almost. So it's amazing that it no. had these. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, because, yeah, I mean, I think I wonder if, if now it would be different as well, because because now, I mean, the, the media is so different that, that when when you when you had an event like like what you guys did, that, mm. you know, the, the, all of the work you did over those over those months and years, it would have been like people wouldn't have been able to not know about it, you know? Yeah, I think that I think we, we live in such an atomised society. That's that's the thing, that, that, you know, you can sit in your own room with your computer and you get all these change.org sort of petitions and what's names and you can push that button and you think, I'm being sort of, you know, I'm an activist. Right. But actually what you really need is to be with other people you need to smell their sweat you need to sort of just just be with them because that way you know you start to get sort of groups one group joining another group joining another group becomes you know more and more powerful right you but know. although I do think you can have that through online communities you can oh. and, and 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 one of the things that I mean what I was thinking about in terms of if if you had the the modern online communities now, then there's no way that the, the, the that's the exciting thing is that the, the press can't be controlled in the way that it has been in the past. So mm. stories about what people are doing can go viral. Yes, within the public, no. and then the media have to pay attention. Yes, and I feel like if that had been there when you guys were doing what you were doing, then it would have like you know, I don't know what that could have meant. And so it's exciting to me that you guys are. Picking up again with it, and that pride's come out because I hope that maybe from this, you know, new solidarity movements can come. Oh, I'm sure. And be, you know, I'm sure that there will. I I mean, what's interesting is that 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 you know, in 1985, after sort of gay pride, LGSM went into abeyance. You know, we had done what we set out to do, but because of pride, LGSM has kind of been reactivated. But we're now called LGSM 2014, right? And you know we've produced a, a 30th anniversary badge based on the original sort of uh, badge. So which you know we're we're going to be selling to sort of raise funds. One of the groups that we're we're wanting to support is the is the uh, the wives of the uh, the Turkish miners, right? So shamelessly sort of you know treated by uh, by the Turkish government. Right. So there are all kinds of of areas that sort of hopefully we can can get involved with. Yeah. And hopefully what 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 we're really wanting to try and do is for Gay Pride 2015, you know, 30 years after sort of the original South Wales miners joined the the the, the Pride March, Gay Pride March. We want the sort of uh, to involve the the trade unions in marching, right? Know? And so that once again, lesbian and gay men support the miners can be right at the front, right of uh, of the pride of the pride march. I mean, and that's and so this is sort of the second, uh, the last question I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? And I guess we're already there. We're all sort of already sort of starting to plug some stuff here. There's a, a Kickstarter campaign, isn't there, to to, to help yeah, to make that happen? There's a, there's a Kickstarter campaign which is to to raise funds for the Tregiga, uh brass band, brass band, yeah, to uh, to come and and uh, and lead the yeah. march. You know, because it was the the brass band that they brought back in 1985 
uh, and then the Tradiga Brass Band was used in the film. Yeah. Uh, and they are a fantastic, you know, brass band. So we're trying to to raise enough funds that uh, that we can bring them. Yeah, and so I'll put a link to that in 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 the in the show notes. Oh, well, and, people, and people should definitely uh, consider to donate into that. I mean, particularly because yeah. it's not even you're not even asking for a for for a really large amount of money. So no. I think it's it's if people just give a little bit, then it's very easily that's, achievable. That's right. I think that that that. That sort of it's somewhere around about sort of uh, a thousand or two, I think it's two thousand something. Pounds, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's not a huge sum, and, and I mean, I think we're sort of at least halfway there. Yeah, you are. Yeah. So, so you know, that's good. But yeah, and we're selling the original design of for the pits and perverts T-shirts. Right. They've been sort of you know redone. Re- redone. I mean, people can follow what you guys are doing at LGSM Pride on Twitter. Do you guys have a website yes. yet? Um, the, the website is sort of... It's, it's, it's in production. It's in production. <laughs> you know, it, it should yeah. be sort of uh, up and running. And I'm quite sure that sort of if if someone goes online and goes to sort of LGSM, and it's probably LGSM 2014 yeah. is to, to look for, cool. that that will come up. And within that... One should be able to sort of um, to buy merchandise. I mean, good heavens! I'm telling you, it's a little capitalist. Well, I don't know. If, 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 if you, it's it's hard to it's a hard contradiction to break, isn't it? That, you, that you, in order to defeat capitalism, you can you sometimes need to get some money. Use yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's true. But it has been it, it's been the most extraordinary journey, and I can't believe that I'm still here. I mean, that's that's what is just. So extraordinary. Well, it's true. Yeah, I mean, I, and it must be so strange for you in that respect. That I never thought I would hit forty, and then I hit forty. You know, and I sort of I I retrained. I mean, you know, just sort of slightly sort of diverging because I know we're we're we come to the end. But yeah, but you know, one of the amazing things about Ken Livingstone and the original GLC, right, was that when you were out of work. You could pay a pound and you could do any number of courses at sort of whether it was Morley College, City Lit, adult education courses. Uh, and Nigel was going to, to, to do a trouser making course with a friend of his. And I said, well, that sounds fun. Can I come along? And I sort of, uh, I went along. And my father used to sell furniture. And if you ever sat on a table, you were told to get off the table, chairs for sitting on, not tables. There was this little elderly Jewish tailor called Harry who was running this course at, at the Strand Centre in Brixton. And the first thing he said is, I want you to sit up on the table cross-legged. I was given permission, you know, after all these get off the table thing, I was given wow. permission to sit on the table. Anyway, I just took to it. I just My Jewish genes came out and I just took to it. And I thought, well, how many pairs of trousers do I need? What I need to do is learn how to make a, a pattern. And someone said, oh, well, go to the London College of Fashion. They do a, a pattern-making course. I paid my pound, so off I went. And I went there, loved it. And they said, you know, we do this three-year diploma for tailoring. And I thought, oh, well... That'll keep me busy, occupied, because, you know, one of the important things for me was just keeping occupied because yeah, I wasn't thinking about death and dying and my health. Right. And so I did. And, you know, I wasn't going to sort of, you know, finish it, but I might as well start. 
and Lambeth sort of, you know, gave me a grant because there were still grants in those days. And so I went and I did it. And then suddenly I was finished. And what was I going to do? And I knew that I couldn't make trousers in Savile Row because I'd kneecap them rather than make <laughs> trousers for them. And one of the tutors said, well, I could give you an introduction to English National Opera, to their wardrobe department. Well, I love opera. I'd worked as an actor, so theatre held no mystique. And so I went along there and I'm sitting waiting for my interview and I'm in the workrooms and there is this letter on their notice board from St Mary's Paddington thanking everybody for all the support they'd given to Peter, who was a, a cutter there, who had just died of, uh, of HIV AIDS. Okay. And I thought, I want to work here. They'll understand if I get ill. Right. And anyway, to cut a long story short... They offered me a full-time freelance. And I kept going, oh, can't I have a full-time job? And they said, no, no, we're negotiating with Bechter, with the union. So, you know, and that was that. So I did a, a year there and then I was laid off because came to the end of the season. But they rehired me the next year. But still, you know, I was on this full-time freelance and eventually I said, are you sure you haven't got... No, 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 we haven't. And I saw a job advertised at the BBC, so I went off there, got that job, and hated it, because all you were were a glorified alteration hand, and I couldn't bear it. And then I saw in the stage that they were advertising for first and second hands at English National Opera. So I rang them up, and I said, oh, please, could you send me an application form? Oh, we know you. There's no need for an application form. I mean, so much for equal opportunities policy. Right. <laughs> anyway, I got there. I got there. Sort of, you know, I was now working sort of full time. I got sick pay. I got holiday pay. Wow. It was, it was brilliant. And I did 10 years there and then my health gave out. So that so was sort of... So you started as an actor, then so you, you actor, waited tables, then yeah. you became a tailor. And then I and became kind of a tailor. Theatrical tailor, yeah. yeah. Then I sort of... Uh, costume I designer. A, I was a, No, no, I was a, I was a, a, a maker. A costume so maker, so I, I was sort of a, a... Became an assistant cutter. And then I had this wonderful cutter who... Roxy, who went on maternity leave. So I got to cut two shows. I got wow. to cut Bohème and then I got to cut Lohengrind. Wagner, I love Wagner. Nice Jewish guy like Wagner. It's fantastic. (laughs) So it was amazing. But then my health gave out. So sort of, you know, you can't, you can't work sort of seven days a week, sixteen-hour days, sort of, uh, you know, for eight or ten weeks, non-stop, you know, to get a show on, right? Without, you know. Yeah. Most people were sort of, you know, in their twenties. You know, by the time I got there, I was in my late thirties. You know. Well, that's. I mean, it's a remarkable life you've had, and it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. I mean, I could go on. I could go on listening to you (laughs) and talking to you for for ages, but I think you've you've got the BBC coming next, so I better better let you have a bit of space in between. Well, David's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you. I'm just. I'm so pleased that sort of you know I went to Spark London. (laughs) Sort of you know, great. And I've listened to 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 some of your sort of. uh, your podcasts, you're sort of uh, getting better acquainted and they're great. Well, thank you. Uh, the last thing I ask everybody to do is just to say goodbye to the audience. Oh, well, goodbye. <laughs> and uh, I wish you well for, uh, for 2015 and make all your dreams come true. 
find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.